is I want you to understand what Yom Kippur is. Um, so today, for so many Christians, I would say that it's irrelevant. And I hope that we can change that because it is extremely relevant because, first of all, God calls it his festival. Second of all, it points to the cross. It points to forgiveness, atonement. It's one of the, it is the most holiest days of the year on, for, for a Jew. I mean, this is, I'm telling you, they will not be working they are going to uh, be celebrating to some extent. They've just come off of the 10 days of awe. So remember, we had the Feast of Trumpets. And then you have 10 days of awe. And then it is Yom Kippur. Today, one of the things Jonathan Kahn was talking about on this national and global day of repentance and prayer was that Ruth Ginsburg died on the eve of trumpets. And that this day of prayer is ending the days of awe, which is significant. When you say awe, you, you mean A-W-E? Yes, A-W-E. Yep, that's what they call it. And so it's during these 10 days, if you recall, that they saw that on trumpets, the doors are opened on trumpets and they are closed on the Feast of well, Yom Kippur. And the, the gates of heaven and the gates are closed. So I don't understand how all of that fits in perfectly, but I do know that in Revelation, it's interesting that we see there, I think it's in chapter 3 where it says at the end of it there, Behold, I saw a door standing open. I believe there is a connection there with Revelation and Yom Kippur. But anyway, we'll, we'll talk more about that. But I can tell you this, that the synagogues tomorrow are going to be filled. Even secular Jews. I mean, they will be filled. Why? Access is the answer. Access into the synagogue, into the one day a year that you had access into the most holy place. In Bible times... This was the only day that you would get to go, that the high priest only went into the most holy place. I mean, this is so holy and revered, and I can't even put it into words. It's also the only day that if you were lost, if you were a Jew who has gone astray, rejected by them. Uh, a few weeks ago, I talked about Lynn Soloway, uh, one of our professors that we had at Seward, and how she had... Um, basically read the New Testament, called her parents, why didn't you tell me there was more? And she ends up basically being rejected by her parents then. They, were, they would consider her dead. If she was walking down a street, they would literally go to the other side of the street to avoid her. They would turn their backs, would not look at her because she was dead. This one day a year, she would be allowed to come back into synagogue. Okay. This is the only day. Now that is if she wants to repent. So you can see why the doors are about to close, you might say. 
There's an open door, but then there's a time the door closes. You might say even the parable of the, the last hour, when nobody else is going to get hired at a certain point. It's too late. So there might be some kind of picture of that here. And so this is your chance, in a sense, to make things right. Well, obviously, we know we can't make it right, but somebody did come and make atonement to make it right for us. Okay? So as we begin here, I'm just going to give you just kind of a couple of things that we've been going through the book of Hebrews, and it's perfect timing because we just closed out where he's been talking specifically about the Day of Atonement. Uh, in Hebrews 10, he said, For this reason it can never by the same sacrifices repeatedly endless, repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. He was talking about the Day of Atonement here. We know that as the chapter continues on. He makes it very clear that this is about the Day of Atonement. In verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We're not talking about Passover here. We're not, we weren't even talking about the daily sacrifices. He's talking about the Day of Atonement. And what he was doing was making that comparison to Yeshua and these yearly sacrifices. Comparing it not only as Yeshua a better sacrifice, but a better high priest, a better temple, a better everything. And that's what we've been talking about in chapter 10 of Hebrews. Um, so Hebrews 7 says the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Now again, he wasn't talking about set asiding, or setting aside the law. He was saying these regulations in what they were foreshadowing. They had to be made perfect in Christ. The law wasn't the problem. It was how the law was being fulfilled that was the problem. So we'll look at that a little bit more as we go. But I want to just kind of give you a real quick rundown, and then we're going to go through these in more detail, of what went on on the Day of Atonement in the times of the Bible that you'd be reading before Yeshua. Um, this was the day that the high priest had the most responsibility. And the word Yahweh, the unspokable name of God, yod heh vav -Heh, was going to be pronounced ten times during this day. And every time that name would be pronounced, the people would bow down and worship. And I love that because here's the other interesting thing in the book of Revelation. We see right after there is a door in heaven open, guess what we see happening? You go read there in chapter 4 and 5, and we see that God is coming, I think Yahweh, Yeshua really rather, is coming and taking his seat on the throne to judge the world. And they're saying, who's worthy to open these scrolls? And nobody is found who can open them except for Yeshua. He says, worthy is the lamb who was slain, for he is worthy to take and open the scroll. And every time we see that, it says that the 24 elders, they all, and the angels, bow down before him at that time. So I think that's also significant that we're seeing in the book of Revelation, after the door has been opened, and now... He's coming in to take his seat to judge. 
that they all fall down and bow, bow down and worship before Yahweh. So, as I said, this is the only day that the high priest would enter into the most holy place, or sometimes called the Holy of Holies. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, which had the cherub uh, on top of them. Now, normally, a high priest will wear eight garments. We're going to talk about this later. On this day, only four garments. They wear white to symbolize purity. We'll talk about that in more detail. The other thing is, is then there was a bull that was sacrificed for the high priest first, and then for the people. This is one of the things that the book of Hebrews pointed out, is that when the high priests in biblical times went in to make atonement, they were sinners, so they had to make atonement for their own sins first, but not Yeshua, because he had no sin. And so it contrasts them. So that's also a difference. And then they would burn incense um, with coals from the altar and carry those coals, that incense, into the most holy place with them so that the smoke would then cover the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat to basically shield them and God because you couldn't look at God in any sort of unholiness. And so it was a way of shielding the priest from God's presence there. All in all, there would be 43 trips made between the altar and the sanctuary. So this was a very long day, a busy day for the high priest. Um, as he would bring blood and pour it out at the altar, at the base of the altar, he'd pour blood on virtually everything. Um, we'll talk about that as well. That, so, go ahead. That 43 is not really a number we see anywhere else, is it? No, I, and I'm not sure why. I probably should have looked into that, why they did that, because there's nothing in Scripture that you know outlines that has to happen that way. Right. We just know that that's what, they, what the Jews did. That's what's recorded. But I'm sure there's a reason. I just don't know what it is. Four plus three is seven. Four plus three is seven. So today what goes on though? Okay, the temple is gone. We're not making these sacrifices. So how do the Jews today do that without a temple? Without being able to make these sacrifices? Well, Leviticus 16.3 says, It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute... Until Yeshua comes. Doesn't say that, does it? It is a statute forever. Or until the church changes it. Okay? No, forever. And this is why it is so misunderstood and not appreciated by the church is because we have gotten rid of these things, saying, oh, those are old things, Jesus fulfilled them, we're done with them. Yes, Jesus fulfilled them, but he doesn't say that it's a statute until he comes. He says it's a statute forever. We are still to celebrate and remember atonement. Because not only was Jesus' atonement, but there's still a day of atonement coming. Because he didn't die on the cross on the day of atonement, did he? He died on Passover. Atonement is different than Passover. How? They both bring forgiveness. But Passover was for kind of families, individuals. 
Atonement, the day of atonement was for the whole nation. You might say the whole world. This is his second coming and there will be judgment day on atonements. I believe that that's what this is a picture of is judgment day. Okay. Now, on the 10th day of Tishri, okay, the Jewish month of Tishri, which we're in right now, the 10th day is when the, the 10 days of repentance conclude. We see um, the first day of Tishri was when trumpets goes. You have the 10 days of awe, and here we are. And it begins the, where they, they begin it with the, the confession of sins. It's called the vidu, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that one correctly. But it is a prayer. We're gonna, I'm going to show you some of these prayers here in just a second. And they also have an immersion, a baptism of repentance, you might say. And they say this prayer ten different times. And again, the name Yahweh will be said ten times. But now to invoke forgiveness, to invoke pardon. Well, we already have that. We have that atonement. We have the pardon in Yeshua. Okay, but this is what will go on in the synagogues tomorrow. They're going to have five services. And they are going to be in church all day long, ultimately. It is a day of solemn rest. They are to afflict their souls. Um, we'll talk more about that, how there's a fast. They're going to be fasting and stuff like that, too. Uh, what's that? Leviticus 16, 31. Oh, 31. Thank you. And I have verse 3 up there? Yeah, that's all right. Thank you. Yeah. Just in case anybody's taking notes. Thank you. I was reading it's 31. It. I was like, Leviticus 16:31, not Leviticus 16:3, like I have here. I must have accidentally deleted it. So here is the prayer of confession. And I, I kind of want to just... Today, like I said, watching this uh, return has been an emotional day for me. I really believe the Spirit of God was working in that. Uh, my daughter Eden came and she stood there for 30 seconds and she was hooked. And she said the same thing. Like, she's not an emotional person. I'm not an emotional person. And I've been fighting back tears all day long. I mean, I'm, I'm emotionally drained from this. We are to be called to be repenting right now. And just because Jonathan Kahn picked today to do that doesn't mean we have to stop. And I think this needs to continue. But I think it's appropriate that we, even as maybe dry and corporately it might seem to do this, I'd like to read these corporately together. And so let's do that. It says, and you can just say it with me, we have transgressed, we have betrayed, we have robbed, we have spoken slander. We have acted perversely and have wrought wickedness. We have sinned willfully. We have been violent. We have accused falsely. We have counseled evil. We have spoken falsely. We have scoffed. We have revolted. We have provoked. We have rebelled. We have committed iniquity. We have transgressed. We have oppressed. We have been stiff-necked. We have acted wickedly. We have corrupted. We have been abominable. We have gone astray. We have led others astray. Now, in English, we kind of lose why this is all here. 
to some extent. Um, it is comprised of two different parts, and I don't have it all up here. Um, the Asham Nu, which basically means we have been guilty. And it's a confession of sins, a list of sins like we just did, but it's one for each of the 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And that's what I mean by we kind of lose it in English a little bit. So that's why there's, there's 22. It, then it's followed by the Alchet, and the Alchet is, it means for the sin. And it's basically a confession, but it, it uh, presents two misdeeds for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so when they read these, they stand bent in humility, head down, and often then they'll, with each one, they'll beat their breast. They'll, they'll do that with each one. And so it's a humility, it's a, um, the word left me, but a remorseful kind of thing. And uh, that's what they do in the synagogues. That's what's be going, going on tomorrow here. And so um, they're supposed to contemplate the meaning of each one of these confessions. And, you know, consider who we are, who we would like to be, and then they resolve to be better. I think that's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. Why would the church want to stop that? You know, I think self-reflection, you know, growing up in the Lutheran church, every week you had to make sure you had the, the confession of sins before you would receive the absolution. This is what's going on. There is a confession of sins here before atonement can take place. Absolution. Everything is going to be closed down. Stores everything. And this is the only fast day that if it lands on Shabbat, it's not postponed. Otherwise, you don't fast on Shabbat. But this day, if it lands on a Shabbat, a Sabbath, you, you, you fast. And so... If you are a boy, 13 years or older, or a girl, 12 years or older, it's a mandatory fast for you as well. Normally, you know, if you're younger than these, they, they don't have to fast. Why is it one year younger than I don't know why, but I, I, and I'm certainly not going to go there. So, <laughs> but um. There's no entertainment, so this is not a day to be on Facebook. It's not a day to be on social media of any sort, watching your favorite movies. This is a day of self-reflection, a day of repentance, and looking inward. Okay? It's going to begin at sundown with an evening service, meaning all vows, and usually with some sorrowful songs, some sorrowful melodies and again, asking for forgiveness and that type of thing. The shofar is going to gather the people to the synagogue. So in their communities, the shofar will blow outside the synagogue and people will then come into the synagogues. I, I really love that today in this return. The blowing of shofars was powerful. And so many people had them. And at the end, Jonathan Kahn got up and he blew it seven times with a, a prayer 
for each, in between each one, or I should say each one had a prayer attached to it. And uh, it was just, it was powerful. I, I can't put it into words. Um, it was the Spirit moving, that's all I can say. As I said, they're going to wear white. And the reason being is because of Isaiah chapter 118, where it says that their sins have been made white as snow. Though they be like scarlet. So what are they expecting? They're expecting forgiveness. They know that though our sins, all of these confessions are red, they're going to be made as white as snow. Well, how is that going to happen? Well, through the atonement sacrifice that would take place. For us, through the atonement sacrifice that did take place. All right? So when judgment day comes, Yeshua does not need to be sacrificed again, does he? Matter of fact, he can't be according to Hebrews. But instead, we claim the atonement that has been made for us. We will stand before him and we will have the blood of Jesus, the atonement sacrifice that has already been done. I claim that there is no judgment for me for sins because of this. So anyway, like I said, they're going to have five services and they're going to focus on confession, uh, the wearing of the tallit, and it's going to end with a shofar blast before everybody goes home. And when that shofar blasts for them to go home, they go home to start preparing and making their sukkot. Sukkah. Sukkot, plural. And so, last week, I think, if not, if you didn't get one last week, we handed out, or at least Noah maybe handed out a schedule for what we're going to be doing. He um, has his sukkot materials out here, and we'll have our sukkot built in the back. And what it is, you showed a video last week, right? Somewhat. Basically, it is to be a structure that is outside, that is to be open um, so that you can see the stars. The point was, in some extent, to some extent, this. That you were to leave your walled cities, to leave your protection, and you were going out to live in the Sukkot where you were putting your whole faith and trust in God's providence and protection. And... I believe personally, and I think we can make a pretty good biblical argument for this, that Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles is when God is going to tabernacle with men again. That we have trumpets, the trumpets are blowing, the rapture type stuff, whatever that might be, whenever that might be. Then you have Judgment Day, the Day of Atonement, and after Judgment Day we have Sukkot, living with God. He is going to be a canopy over us. And we're going to read some of those verses here soon. He's going to become a canopy over us and protect us in Jerusalem. And that's Sukkot. It's a picture of that. So, like I said, we will talk more about that. But for now, that's a, an, an outline version of it. I want to just show you the messianic significances. We've kind of talked about it. It's pretty obvious. That Romans 3.25 says God presented him, Yeshua, as a sacrifice of atonement. He was our Passover lamb, but the Bible is not silent on the fact that Yeshua is also our atonement sacrifice. He's both. 
And I think, again, we forget about that. And how does he become that sacrifice for you? Not just because he did it, but you have to have faith in his blood. He didn't just die and now the whole world has been atoned for. You have to believe it, accept it, have that relationship with him for that to work, for you to receive the atonement. Hebrews 9.11, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place. Again, we're talking about atonement, not Passover, not any other thing, because you only entered the most holy place on atonement. So Hebrews is saying that he is our atonement sacrifice, not just the Passover one. This is also why when Yeshua dies, the curtain of the temple is torn, giving you access into the most holy place, saying, now you have access every day. Why? Because he says there's a new holy place, a new most holy place. We became that. I'm not going to dwell here anymore. I'm going to dwell here now. So I'd say the Feast of Atonement is kind of an important thing. And again, the churches shouldn't be ignoring this. Everything was pointing to that. So here is just a prophetic picture. I've already talked about it, but maybe just in, in seeing it laid out here. The trumpets, which I believe, you know, they, they, Revelation 6, we see it, it ends, the seals. The seventh seal begins the trumpets blowing. And maybe that's the 1 Corinthians 15, what that's talking about. Then you have the ten days of awe. First of Tishri is the trumpets. Tenth of Tishri begins atonement. Yom Kippur. And that's a picture of judgment day. And then what's interesting is like 2 Corinthians 5.10, talking about judgment says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment begins at his seat in, before his throne. Where did the high priest go on this day? To the throne of God, the mercy seat. That's what the mercy seat is a picture of, is God's very throne. That's why you have cherub on the mercy seat. Cherub are always at God's throne. And so you're going to appear for judgment day before the mercy seat, before the judgment. And then tabernacles, again, living with him, and, and at the end of that, really, the wedding banquet of the Lamb, or maybe even during it, I don't know time-wise as far as that goes, but uh, that's what tabernacles is going to be. I mean, we live with him. You don't go live with your spouse until you're married, the wedding banquet. Now, again, in the festivals, we know that Yeshua dies the very day and hour of Passover. That's a biblical holiday, one of the Lord's festivals that he also said you were supposed to do forever. And just coincidence, good timing, or God's timing, that Jesus happens to die the very day, the very hour. 
Then three days later, you have the Feast of First Fruits, which just so happens that Yeshua rises from the dead. Again, good timing or God's timing? And then it just so happens that on Shavuot, which the Greeks call Pentecost, the very day you have the Holy Spirit being given. I don't, I'm not going to say I don't think, I know these aren't accidents, folks. This is because God's festivals are a calendar and they are a sign for us. The scriptures say that they are signs for us. The Sabbath is a sign. When we as a church have gotten rid of all of these, you lose it all. Those are the spring festivals that all talk about Jesus' first coming and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now the fall festivals are about his second coming. And when we talk about the Feast of Tabernacles next week, you're going to see that. It's going to blow your mind, I think, to see that what Yeshua did, why he did what he did when he was on earth, was to fulfill the Feast of Tabernacles. The whole book of John, I don't think you can understand it without understanding the feasts. We always talk about, well, Jesus bent down and he wrote something in the dirt and everybody scatters. Why did he do that? I'll tell you why. Because it was prophesied in Jeremiah that he was going to do that and at the Feast of Tabernacles. Why is he called the living water? Why is he called the light of the world on the Feast of Tabernacles? I'll tell you why when we talk about the Feast of Tabernacles. But you won't understand it if you don't understand the festivals. Otherwise, they're just words. Oh, yeah, he's the, you know, why not just call it, well, he's the flashlight of the world or whatever. These aren't just words. These have meaning that are attached to these festivals. And without them, you just make up whatever you want. So, very important. And that's the other thing I appreciated about Jonathan Kahn today. You know, that today isn't just a Sabbath. It's a, it's a Shabbat Shuvah, a, a, a special Sabbath of repentance because of these festivals going on. And he said, which today is the Sabbath. Not tomorrow, folks. Tomorrow is not the Sabbath. Today is. I'm not saying you can't go worship tomorrow. Go ahead, go worship tomorrow. But I'm telling you, tomorrow is not the Sabbath. And I can show you that forwards and backwards in Scripture, as well as history. But again, all of these things, because the church has rejected the Jewishness of Scriptures, which, by the way, Jesus was a Jew. What? So, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, that kind of brings me to this. Colossians 2.16 is a verse that's often used to say that Christians shouldn't do these things anymore. So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding to a festival or new moon or Sabbaths. And they look at that and say, see, it is telling you, don't do these things anymore. You don't need to do the Sabbaths and these new moons and these festivals. Well, first of all, he says, these things are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance, the meaning, is of Christ. In other words, all of these festivals are pointing to Christ. 
So why would somebody be saying, don't do those anymore because they point to Jesus? That doesn't even make sense, does it? What he's saying is, don't let anybody judge you when you do these things. Let me tell you, you're going to be judged if you start doing these things. Amen to those of you who practice this stuff? Yeah, you're going to be judged. And here Colossians is saying, don't let anybody judge you according to those, because when you celebrate these, it is celebrating Yeshua. That is the substance of it. Not some Jewish thing, but some God thing. Big difference. Well, let's get into the Day of Atonement as the Bible describes it. And I want to take you verse by verse through Leviticus here. And so you might want to go to Leviticus chapter 16. And we're going to start at verse 2. And this is going to just describe what goes on on the Day of Atonement here. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil. So again, what day are we talking about? Clearly the Day of Atonement, because that's the only time you go into the holy place. He says, Before the mercy seat, which is of the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. So normally we see God appears in a cloud. Why? Because again, to shield, just like that smoke was intended to do. And you can't just come at any time, but only this one day a year on the Day of Atonement into God's presence. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ that we now have His presence every day. Anyway, it continues in verse 3. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with the linen turban. He shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore, he shall wash his body in water and put them on. In other words, you wash your body. You need to be purified. You need to be clean. You need to go through repentance. You need to be washed. Likewise, kind of like what I said to you before, there is no atonement for you if you haven't been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's what makes us holy. But, and, and all of those things are pictured here, but notice the clothing. You have four articles here. Let me show you what the priest normally looked like. Here on the left side, that's what he normally looked like. Every day of the year, Outside of this day, then he looked like what he did on the right. You had trousers, then your white tunic, then you had a white turban, and you had this sash on the turban with written on it, holy to the Lord. So on the Day of Atonement, the priests take off this, this beautiful, glorious, colorful garment, and they put on this plain white robe which they say, and the Bible does too, really, stands for purity. Philippians says this, um, he humbled himself. 
Jesus did, and took the form of a man. That's what we see going on here. There is a humility aspect, taking off all of this glorious garb and humbling yourself in this white attire and being very simple, just pure. So only these four parts compared to the eight parts born any other day. Now, we're going to talk about this later, but once the priest takes these clothes off, they are never to be worn again. A lot of times what they would do, and we'll talk about this for tabernacles, so just kind of remember it. On tabernacles, they're going to light a lamp. I think it was like 70 or 75 feet high outside of Jerusalem. You know what they used for the wicks? The clothes. Okay? To light the world. These clothes are only worn this day, that's it. Never again. Revelation 3.17 says, Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Hello, America. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed. Don't think a Jew reading this, when he reads white garments, isn't going to think atonement. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Again, this is all talking about you think you're doing well, but you're not. You're sinful. Buy from me gold, purified, made holy. The whole context of this is being pure and righteous. Yeah, typically not. But I'm talking about in the days when this was written, there were plenty of Jews that believed in Yeshua as their Messiah, and that would not have escaped them. So, in Revelation 19.8, it also says, And to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Again, purity. Now, we've talked about this before, but I just want to bring it up again. What makes us pure? I, sh I should have another verse up here, but... White clothes. How do those clothes get white? I think it's in chapter 5 of Revelation. That's the one that I should have up here. But it says that these are they, I think, that have come out of the tribulation, and it says they have made their clothes white in the blood of the Lamb. What makes us pure? The blood of Yeshua. And the righteous acts of the saints. Today the church wants to just say this, oh, just believe in Jesus and everything's fine. There's no requirement to the covenant. All you got to do is say it. Say a prayer, you're in. Now go live like hell and you'll be in heaven. You said a prayer. No. To make your, your clothes white, there is a, every covenant had two sides to it. And I get thrown out of many churches saying that. But it's biblical all throughout the Bible. The blood of the Lamb and the righteous acts that you do. Now, you can't do those righteous acts without Yeshua. We can do all things through Christ, you know, all these things. Faith without works is dead. 
Okay? You got faith in the blood, works, you know, in our righteous acts. Faith without works, it's dead. We talked about this a few weeks ago with our math issue. But the bottom line is you need both. They go together hand in hand. So white clothes is purity. This is what we're supposed to do. When we wear our white clothes, we're supposed to be remembering, yes, Yeshua has made atonement for us. Therefore, I need to examine my life. Examine what I'm doing. These clothes mean readiness. Readiness for atonement. Mark 9, 2 says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, and he led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before him Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. It's not an accident that Jesus goes up on a mountain just before he's about to make atonement and he is wearing white clothes, whiter and purer than anybody could ever bleach them. Because he is our high priest and he is now clothed, ready to go make atonement. It's Revelation 7.14. Revelation 7.14 where it's, they're washed in the blood of the Lamb. Thank you. So, basically, Yeshua tells his disciples, too, he says, no, don't tell anybody about this, don't tell anybody what you saw until after the crucifixion. In other words, until after atonement has been made for you. Because, think about it, the only time these guys are seeing somebody wear solid white like that is when? Atonement. Do you think those disciples didn't maybe make a connection? Especially when this is the world they lived in? So don't tell anybody until after the Son of Man has been raised. Until after I've made atonement. It'll make sense to them then. Then you can tell them why I was dressed in white. So, let's look at the goats in verse 5 of Leviticus 16. It says, He shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats, as a sin offering, and one ram as a burnt offering. The two goats make a sin offering. That word a in Hebrew, it's, it's basically, it's saying one, a hot. One sin offering. So notice, two goats make one offering. So, when we talk about these goats, we're going to kind of talk about some things later. Uh, both of them together are making the offering. Like I said, just kind of keep that in mind for now. In this picture, I, want you to, I wanted you to see this picture because it's kind of important to show you what was going on on this day. You can see the high priest there in white. He, he doesn't have the red sash on. He stands in the middle, and in middle, the, the goats basically there, one is on his right hand, one is on his left hand, and then in front of him would be this what's called the lottery box. And in the days of Yeshua, it was a gold box. Prior to that, it was just a wood box, but a gold box was be, uh, would be set in front of him. 
All right? And in verse 8, it says, Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. Aaron was this high priest, the one dressed in white there. One lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. So, how did he cast lots? Did he flip a quarter? What? No. What it was is there in this lottery box that was in front of him, there was a white and a black stone. And he would reach his hand in, reach his other hand in, and he would pull one out in each hand. One of them, the, the white one, was the lot for Adonai. La Adonai, it was called. And if I remember correctly, it seems like it always ended up in the right hand. And that sometime after Yeshua died, in the Talmud it records that one of the miracles that stopped happening was the lot would end up in the left hand. And so it just seemed like it always ended up in the right hand. But are, are those different stones than what they have on the breastplate? Yes, they are different stones. Yeah. The stones in the breastplate of the the high priest that but he wouldn't be wearing them today, but yeah. So anyway, um, the one that was in his right hand, then it would be La Adonai, and then the other one was uh, La Azazel. La is just means two, to Azazel or to the Lord. The one to the Lord, they would basically then set that stone on the head of the goat ultimately. Um, oh, one thing that's also kind of important is if it if it came up, when it came up on the right hand, the priest, you saw that there was somebody on either side of him. He would say, my Lord, the priest, raise up your left hand. If it's in the right hand, the prefect would say, my Lord, the priest, raise up your right hand. And then they would put the lot on the respective goat's head and then they would tie a red or a scarlet bandana on both goats. The Azazel goat they would tie that red bandana around its throat. And the one for Adonai, um, oh, I'm sorry, the head for Azazel, the throat for Adonai, because it showed that it was going to die, ultimately, to be sacrificed. The other one was on the head, Azazel, and it went out. And um, I'm trying to remember here how this goes, but the two priests that were there, one was the prefect, the other one was the, the father of the, the priest's household, basically the head of the household, the father. And since, for example, if John the Baptist would have fulfilled his priestly role, because he was in the line of the high priest, John the Baptist would have been in line to do the casting of lots, and Zechariah would be standing next to him. Okay? So anyway, um, the alive one that had the scarlet thread or bandana on its head was then taken out. It says this, Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering, as a sacrifice. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. So, 
what would happen is this red bandana would miraculously turn white. They would often hang one up in the temple or the tabernacle as well. And so after Yeshua dies on the cross, we have the Talmud recording that 40 years before the destruction of Jerusalem, which Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, 40 years before that is 30 AD, when Yeshua's dying, they don't, they don't say when Yeshua dies, they just say 40 years before the destruction, the miracle of the red bandana turning white stopped. To me, that's like a big light bulb going off. To them, here's what they say in the Talmud, why that miracle stopped. There was a false Messiah that came, and too many people followed him. Hello? Not only that, but the lot's not coming up in the, in the right hand anymore. Not only that, but these huge temple doors started opening up on their own. We talked about that a few weeks ago. God was warning. God was giving signs. He was trying to talk to his people. And a lot of them listened, okay? But a lot didn't, too. So verses 11 through 14 here, as we're going to continue on, are going to describe the killing of the goat and bringing and pouring out the blood on the mercy seat in the most holy place. And so I'm just to save some time, not going to go through all of that. But um, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, we looked at this before, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. That miracle that took place, they saw this. They saw this as their sins being taken away. They saw this miracle being Isaiah chapter 1. And again, like crimson, they shall be as wool, white as wool, uh, making a connection to these sacrifices as well. So, um, Azazel. Uh, if you want to know, by the way, just where it is in the Talmud, this is your reference, and this is what it says in the Talmud exactly as far as that miracle stopping. Now, I know Daniel Joseph is going to have a little different twist on this, but I, because he says, God says in Scripture, that the two goats make a sacrifice, he says that these two goats both are a picture of Yeshua. That may be. Okay, that makes sense to me. Two goats are a sacrifice. But this also makes sense to me too. So I'll let you guys, I'm just going to throw them both out there and you can decide, you know, maybe you don't like one of them, that's fine. Barabbas, remember Barabbas? He was this guy we really know nothing about outside of he was a zealot of some sort. He was arrested and he's the guy that Pilate brings out and says, listen, it's a custom to free somebody on this day to celebrate. Who do you want? This Yeshua, who claims to be the king of the Jews in essence, or this Barabbas, this murderer. 
And the Pharisees rile up the crowd so that they're Barabbas, Barabbas. At least that's what the movies show us. But the Bible does say they cried out for Barabbas. And so they cry out for Barabbas, and Barabbas is let go, and that's all we ever hear of him ever again. Never to be seen or heard of, written about, that we know of. It, it just He's gone. Barabbas means bar, son of, Abba, Abbas, father, son of the father. So you see Barabbas as being a type of son of the father, as Yeshua is the son of the father. So you do see both of them kind of being represented. One of them is going to disappear. One of them is going to be sacrificed. Now, again, this isn't a perfect thing because we this, again, is Passover. However, remember, the scriptures say he's also our atonement. He's both of them. So the question is, is Barabbas a type of this Azazel scapegoat that was taken out into the wilderness while Yeshua was the sacrificial one? Um, I kind of like that analogy, and I, I think that there's quite possible that that was the case, that you see one going off. Azazel, I'll talk a little bit about what that means later, but I'll tell you this. It's the name of a demon in the wilderness. Why would you name Yeshua, part of the sacrifice, as this demon name? What the Jews saw was that this was to go to Azazel, to the wilderness demon, to put the sins of the people back where they came from, back where they belong. And then they're going to take this thing off into the wilderness, out by, they typically say, to a steep cliff, because they, they didn't want this thing coming back. Imagine seeing this goat come back into town. Those are your sins. And the whole picture of this is that your sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. You'll never see them again. So the goat was never to be seen again, never to come back. So... Like I said, take it or leave it, I don't know. But I see that picture there, and I don't think that it being, you know, the, the two goats being a sacrifice necessarily negates that. Um, verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. You know, I read this and I get this picture of, okay, sprinkle, 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 a little couple of drops here, a couple of drops there. No, the records show that this, they would take hyssop and that they would literally crack it like a whip. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, I think, in the essence of Yeshua being whipped, Okay that they would literally just throw this, and this, the blood would go everywhere, which is why Hebrews says, in fact, everything was sprinkled with blood. And so they're just throwing it out, splattering the blood. And what's kind of interesting is the picture that you can see here is because there's going to be a trail of blood leading all the way to the mercy seat. 
Well, what does Yeshua do? He goes from the cross to the mercy seat where he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. The trail ends at the mercy seat. Just kind of a, a picture there. Literally, still, the right hand of God. Are we still talking about Yom Kippur stuff? Or is this yes, Yom Kippur. Okay. Yep, the two goats. Passover, there are some similarities with the sacrifices. Because the scapegoat aspect was a Passover. The scapegoat is Day of Atonement. But, but I'm saying, yeah, with Jesus and Barabbas, that was Passover. But again, it was during Passover. However, we see that the Bible says that Yeshua was also our atonement sacrifice. So he's both. So even though it happened at Passover, it was a picture of atonement being placed as well. Because I think that atonement, we're not going to see that happen again. Jesus can only be sacrificed once. Hebrews says he, he died once. He cannot die again. He died once for all. There's no more sacrifice. So there can't be him coming back to do a second atonement. That's why he fulfills both at the same time. And that's why it fills, even though it is at Passover that that's happening with Barabbas, it's still fitting. We're only dealing with a five-day difference here between tabernacles and atonement. But there is no question, the Bible tells us, when Jesus should be born. And it is around the Feast of Tabernacles. But because John says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that literally is tabernacled among us, I kind of tend to think that he was born on tabernacles. When is that? John. The wind? Um, five days from tomorrow. So tabernacles and young before basically... Five days apart, yep. It's kind of like... Passover and first fruits. They're only three days apart. The spring festivals are really close together. The fall festivals are really close together. So we're, we're right now we're just in Jesus Yes, yep. And this is why on your sheet that for your schedule for us celebrating uh, tabernacles, we're going to have a gift exchange. We're going to have a birthday cake for Jesus, Yeshua. We're going to celebrate his birthday when he was actually born, the time of year that he really was born. So, and I'm going to, you know, give you a little teaching on why that is and whatnot. But you will not find a pastor in the world that knows anything about Scripture that will tell you that Jesus was born in December. Even the liberal ones are not <laughs> going to say that. They all know that's not when he was born. And people say, well, you know, just think about that for a moment, guys. Does truth really matter? You know, people always think that I'm trying to put you guys under the law by showing you these things. But no, I think truth matters. And if God has a calendar and a way of doing things, I want to know and understand those things. I don't want to be following something that is clearly not from the Bible. And just because of peer pressure, and it's just the way we've always done it, going to continue to do it. I want to do it the way the Bible tells us, the way the early church did it. Did you know the early church didn't celebrate Christmas too? Yeah, right. So why do we do the things we do? If it's not biblical, why? 
You know, it's just the way it's always been done. And, you know, well, I think truth makes a difference. Partly because it helps you understand why Jesus did what he did, when he's coming back, what he's going to do when he comes back. Just like the spring festivals are revealing why he went to the cross. These fall festivals are, are talking about his return. And I'm telling you, that's what's going on in the world right now. It is not an accident that what's happening in the world right now is at the time of festivals. You can, I've got it on some presentation somewhere. You would be amazed at how many significant events go on during the festivals throughout history. Because it's God's calendar. So, do you have to know this to be a Christian and be saved? No, of course not. But do you want to know Jesus more? Do you want to understand his word more? Well, then you need to know this stuff. That's, you've got to get out of this matrix, for lack of a better word, and you have to be opened up to reality and see the world as what the Bible describes it as. Take the red pill. Take the red pill. So. All right. Um, let's see. Yeah, I think we can move on to this next verse. Verse 18. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. So the only time blood was put on the altar of incense and its horns is on Yom Kippur. That's the only time. So incense, remember, is a picture of prayers. Revelation says that the prayers go up, uh, the incense. Uh, it, so we know that this is a picture of prayer according to Scripture. And what did Yeshua come to do? The, the sacrifice of atonement, the blood on that altar of incense is significant because we know the atonement sacrifices Yeshua. Yeshua becomes the mediator of a new covenant. The mediator. The man be between God, you know, there is only one mediator between man and God, the man Jesus. That's what it says. So it's a perfect picture here of putting that blood on the horns of the altar of incense here. So Leviticus 16.20 here, moving on. When he was made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. So the sages, the Jewish sages, record a prayer that was said as the priests would lay their hands on the goat and confess the sins. Here's what it says. O Lord, your people, the house of Israel, have committed iniquity, transgressed, and sinned before you. Forgive, O Lord, I pray, the iniquities and transgressions and sins which, you, which your people, the house of Israel, have committed and transgressed and sinned before you. As it is written in the Torah of Moses, your servant, for on this day shall atonement be made to you to cleanse, be made for you to cleanse you from all your sins, you shall be clean before the Lord. 
how impressive is that? Catch that again. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. This is what they would say as they're laying the hands on there. Well, that's exactly what Yeshua did. On this day, there is going to be a judgment passed. He, he becomes the, the, the atonement sacrifice. Anyway, that's Yoma 6.2 if anybody cares. Um, just a beautiful sinner's prayer, ultimately. The other thing is, is by the hand of a suitable man. That's also interesting. We'll get into that in just a moment. Um, here's that. I told you I was going to talk about Azazel and what that means. Um, rugged, Azaz is rugged. El is strong. It's where we get God as well. It refers to a rugged mountain and cliff from which a goat was cast down. Nemonides, uh, a famous Jewish rabbi, Rambam, he said that it, he belonged to the class of the Serarim, which is a goat-like demon haunting the desert. Sins and evil consequences were sent back to the spirit of desolation and ruin. So that's what Nemonides said. Which, again, to me says that, yes, I know that this is one sacrifice, but I don't see that being a picture of Yeshua as much. When they're saying, this guy is cast off of a cliff, the sins are being taken back to their owner, in a sense, to ruin. So, Enoch, the book of Enoch. Interesting as well. Um, says that Azazel was a fallen angel who taught men warfare, making weapons, uh, and women the art of deception by ornamenting the body, dyeing the hair, painting the face and the eyebrows. Also witchcraft, until he was bound hand and foot by the archangel Raphael and changed to a rough and jagged rock, where he abides in utter darkness until the day of judgment, when he will be cast into the fire, to be consumed forever. That's Enoch chapter 8. So, Enoch is talking about this Azazel as this fallen angel who teaches human beings to do all these vain, corrupted, evil things. And then he's basically cast and, and has to wander in the desert. That's what Enoch says Azazel is. So, as a demon. As far as a suitable man, I said I would come back to that. Um, I just find it interesting that Yeshua, when he was led out of the city to the cross, to the part of being sacrificed, he was led out by Simon of Cyrene. Now, again, that's the sacrificial goat, so maybe this isn't the perfect fit, but just for you to kind of think about here. Um, I'm going to address it again here in just a second. But sending it away into the wilderness, again, we kind of talked about it. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. So according to tradition, um, this is also fascinating to me. According to Jewish tradition, when that goat, the scapegoat, was being led out to its solitary place, 
the goat was greeted along the way by people who would pull his wool, spit at him, and prick him. Hello? It's exactly what they did with Jesus. Matthew 26, 67. Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands. Isaiah 56, I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard, the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. So, this is how the Old Testament, really, I think, can confirm Yeshua as the Messiah from the Law and the Prophets as well. I'd say that this, you read through this in Leviticus and you're bored to death, but when you start looking for Yeshua in it, it starts going, wow, wow. This isn't, these are too many coincidences for this to be an accident. One more thing to point out here in Leviticus, that suitable man here again, uh, Matthew 27, 32, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And so maybe that's the case. I don't know. Verse 22, the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. It's kind of like Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just like they would lay the sins on the goat to take them away, our sins have been laid on Yeshua to be taken away. That's the, the question. Or both, that there's a dual meaning there, which is kind of where I stand. It was really to be taken to a cliff. The, the live goat was the one that was to be sacrificed, ultimately. So, you know, when, when Yeshua was on the road to Emmaus, or that wasn't then, when, when he's talking to the Pharisees and he say, you guys study the scriptures because you think that by them you, you, you have eternal life, but these are the scriptures that testify about me. This is the kind of thing to me that, like, oh, yeah. This is what he's saying. The law and the prophets aren't about some boring sacrifice. It's about Jesus, Yeshua. That's what it's about. Verse 23, There an Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting. He shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. So here's where I was telling you, these are garments are never to be worn again. There's a couple of things that I find interesting with this. Not only in the old times what they did with them, but what does Yeshua do? When he is that sacrifice, the linen garment, he's wrapped in linen and he folds them up and he leaves them before he exits the tomb. Why? I mean, why didn't he just keep his clothes on? Yeah, I'm sure because he was in glory as well, but I think there's more meaning. I think there was a reason for that as well. What do they call that garment today? The Shroud, Shroud of Turin. Turin. Uh, here it says in Yoma 12b, uh, Kohanim, that's just priests, uh, 
The priest, he shall store them away. This teaches us that they require being stored away forever, and he shall not use those four garments for any other Yom Kippur. So, um, I think there's also more than one meaning to this. Yeshua's garments, ultimately, his flesh. And he is never going to, he never will put that on again, at least in the way he had. 2 Corinthians 5.16, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. You're not going to know him in that way anymore. It's new. It's been done. So... All of this is just so prophetic. We're almost done here. The mercy seat, where the blood was poured out. Okay, the mercy seat pictured here. The mercy seat is ha kaparet. Um, that kaparet, kaparet, this is where you get the word kippur, which means atonement. And so very, the word mercy seat, even embedded within the word, we see this atonement aspect. Isn't Yom day? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so the lower part of this thing, that's really called the ark. The upper cover is called the mercy seat. There's really two pieces, the cover and the bottom. The ark is the bottom, mercy seat being the top where the cherubs sit. Um, God establishes his throne on forgiveness and mercy, the scriptures say. And... He establishes the throne of God. He sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Why? Because his blood has been put on the mercy seat. So remember that when the devil is going to try and tell you that you've done something too great, you know, you're not good enough, you can't be forgiven. I mean, you know, you know, God, you know, I've done too many bad things, whatever. You need to remember that you're not too far gone. That the very foundation of God's throne is mercy. And what this whole thing is about, that your sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west, never to come back. That you need to remember the power of this atoning sacrifice. And it's interesting, the power of God, how that word is used here in Numbers 14, 17. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy. There's power in this mercy seat. Forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. So there's mercy, but only for those who are repentant. He says, but he by no means clears the guilty. In other words, if you're not going to accept, believe, then the Day of Atonement's not for you. Judgment Day only will be for you, not atonement. But here, we find mercy. And I, I think that's important when we look at other verses like 1 Corinthians 1.24, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
Just like Moses called the mercy seat power, Christ is our mercy seat and is called power. Christ is the power of God. Romans says the same thing, that Christ, uh, the gospel, the power of God. Christ is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. James 2 says, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we need to show mercy to those who have sinned against us. Why? Because it's what God has done for us. And if you don't show mercy, no mercy is shown to you. This is a good lesson for us. Also in the Day of Atonement. This isn't a day for us to look down on others, but remember they are welcomed in. This is the one day a year that no matter what you've done, you're welcome back if you will repent. If you so desire. Because this is mercy. And we are to show that mercy to others. That is an important part. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Only if they repent. What's that? But only if they repent. Yeah. <laughs> only if they repent, ultimately, yes. They will not receive mercy without repentance. Now... Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I was kind of thinking how to word this, but bottom line is, yes, there is a time that if they're not repent, we're supposed to bring them to repent. We're supposed to warn, we're supposed to lead them to that. If they don't repent, then yeah, there, there comes a time when your, your time is better spent elsewhere. You don't throw your pearls before swine, ultimately. And likewise within the church, I was just having a conversation with one of my brothers this week and he just felt like he really had failed on, on a hunting trip because he didn't witness as well as he felt like he maybe should. We're Christians and we had this opportunity. They're 16 days out in the wilderness and he just felt like he failed. And we were talking about, you know, Scripture does say in 1 Corinthians 5 that if anyone calls himself a brother, a Christian, but is sexually immoral greedy, an adulterer, a whole list of sins. If you're a, a Christian and you're living in willful sin and not repenting when people are calling you out on it, with such a man do not even eat. And he said, am I, am I being wrong? He says, I just want to please God. Am I being wrong in hanging out with these people even? He said, well, are they, do they call themselves Christians? That's the first question. But that's what scripture says, and I think the church has done a pretty poor job of talking about that. This is what church discipline is about, because you see, it's just like what God told the, the Israelites, you don't have anything to do with them, why? You don't intermarry with them, why? Because they will lead you astray. It's no different for us today. So if you know somebody who calls himself a Christian, but is living in willful sin, and when it's brought up to them, they continue to do so. It's time to excommunicate. That's what Scripture says. 1 Corinthians 5. So, Now, again, I could do a whole lesson on that. There's, there's processes you go through. You know, Matthew talking about go and talk to them, then take some others with you to talk to them first. That kind of thing. But anyway.
Last slide, just to kind of show you again the timeline here. We had 10 days ago, Tishri 1, there in the middle. Prior to that, there were 30 days, the month of Elul, where it's kind of a time of repentance again. We have been in a season of preparation for the Lord's return. The Day of Atonement is Judgment Day. Trumpets, it's kind of like the Lord's return, uh, 10 days of awe. Some people connect that to these, uh, the tribulation period. And I don't know. There's just different ways you can plug these things in. But some people look at it that. Then Judgment Day, and then we get to live with God. I don't know. All I know is that this is a period of year that we are to be focusing on repentance. We are supposed to be self-examining ourselves because we want to ask God to remove as much dross from our lives as possible. We want to get that out. We, we should be asking ourselves, am I doing this right? Lord, is this what you want me to be doing? Am I, am, am I being selfish? Am I being greedy? Have I been focusing on you? Have I been lustful? We, we need to be examining ourselves during this time because we're preparing to put on white. And so tomorrow, I expect to see all of you at church in white robes. <laughs> no, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you get the point, though. It is, we are, it's a solemn day, but at the end of it, it's a time to realize that we have been made white in the blood of the Lamb, and it's a time to celebrate because atonement has been made for you. Your sins have been taken away. And there is no greater message, no greater thing to focus on, and that's what we're going to celebrate with the Day of Atonement. All right, well, let's uh, close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are just so humbled to, to be able to even call ourselves by your name. Yeshua, you have saved. That's what your name, your very name means. And Lord, as we continue to just seek you and examine ourselves, we just call upon you to reveal sins in our lives and we confess unto you Lord that we have not done what we should that we have not stood up nearly as loud and as tall against homosexuality against the murdering and slaughtering of millions of children against covetousness and just keeping up with the Joneses and, and trying to have all of the things of this world to find happiness and comfort and joy and contentment in material things rather than in you. To have lustful eyes and to, to not be satisfied with what you have given us. To not be loving towards our neighbor, but to be selfish and greedy and impatient, knowing that the only way and reason that we see is because of you opening our eyes to begin with. 
And so we pray for the lost, Lord, as this is a season that they are welcomed in, that you would give us opportunity and eyes to see those who need to know the message of atonement. That they would know what we know when you open their eyes. So thank you for this time, Lord. I pray that you continue to protect it, to guard it, and to allow many more days of fellowship, of learning, of praise, and of time spent with you. In Yeshua's name, amen. amen.